The OSU men's basketball team lives to fight another day. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Thomas Bradley. This is After the Score. Welcome to After the Score. I'm Steve Brown here with Thomas Bradley. This week we'll talk about Esteban Weaver, the best Columbus basketball player who never was. He's the subject of a new documentary. We'll also talk with an Ohio State football beat writer about all the Buckeyes turning pro and whose stock is rising with NFL scouts. But first, no one has any illusions about the OSU men's basketball team winning a national title. They probably won't even make the NCAA tournament. But their chances are still technically alive. The Buckeyes won their first Big Ten tournament game against Penn State, and the uphill battle continues Friday night against Michigan State, the number two team in the nation. Adam Jardy covers the Buckeyes for the Columbus Dispatch. Adam, junior forward Mark Loving really stepped it up against Penn State with 24 points. You write that he also chipped in with a much-needed pep talk. Yeah, uh, apparently coming out of uh, the final huddle before the second half started, I guess um, Mark Loving kind of looked at his teammates and, and basically told them, like, look, guys, look at that scoreboard. Our season's over right now. We can't have that happen. We want to keep playing. We need to keep playing. we got to go win this game somehow. And to me, that just that, that shows you that, that he's becoming, little by little, he might be becoming that leader that they've talked about, that, that role that they've kind of thrust upon him this year as, as the lone junior on the team. I think he might be starting to, to understand that a little bit. And I talked to him about that after the game and, and he kind of downplayed it and said you know yeah you know it's kind of stuff I would have said two months ago or whatever but he when I talked to Trevor Thompson about Mark Trevor couldn't really find the words it was all about like the emotion in Trevor's face talking about the emotion that Mark Loving brought was impressive to me like I think it, it's there's something that might be starting to change there might be something that's starting to grow there give it time I mean it's, it's one game but it was certainly a step in the right direction for Mark Steve and I have talked uh, for a week now whether Ohio State needs to win the Big Ten tournament to get into the NCAA tournament or a good run in the NCAA, in the Big Ten tournament would get them in. But we both agree that it starts with beating Michigan State Friday night and, and going from there. It, it, what is the path to the NCAA tournament for this team? Well, in essence, they have to be playing on Sunday. If they make it to the Big Ten tournament championship game, I think they're firmly on the bubble and and in the realm of conversation for an at-large bid. I think anything short of that really it just doesn't doesn't get them there. It, it's it's just they've put themselves in, in too much of a hole with some of the losses that they've had um, coming into the Big Ten tournament. Uh, they were 11 and 12 against top 200 RPI teams this year. And one of the things the committee looks at pretty heavily is your record against top 200 teams. If you're not at least 500, they pretty much immediately dismiss you. So for Ohio State to get there, if they win today, that puts them one ahead or one above 500. And if they lose tomorrow, then they're back to 500, and they haven't made the championship game. So to me, I think they need to win today. Tomorrow they get they get a quality opponent more than likely, and they'll probably they would probably play Maryland on Saturday. And really, if you're looking at, you know, who's playing well down the stretch and who's doing what, for Ohio State to go into the Big Ten tournament and beat a Penn State team that's really not that bad of a team, like like you would think a Penn State team would be, uh, you know, think they have, for them to win that game, they somehow find a way to beat the number two team in the country and then knock off a, a Maryland the next day. 
that would turn some heads. That would put them firmly in the conversation. But you know, it's just there is a pretty big hole they got to dig themselves out of, and there's only so much you can do this time of the year. This will be their third game against Michigan State in 17 days, and Michigan State has really owned them in the last two contests. What on earth could they possibly do to upset the Spartans Friday night? Well, I think there's there's a couple of things that have to happen for Ohio State to, to have a chance. And I'm not even saying to win. I'm just saying to be in it with seven, eight minutes to go. And the first thing is that Ohio State will have a built-in advantage having played on Thursday and Michigan State not. Uh, it, it's it's a proven if you go back, you look at all the numbers of the Big Ten tournament, and I would assume every tournament, but when you're the team that hasn't played, it takes you a couple of minutes to get into the flow of the game. It takes you a few minutes to kind of, you know, get used to the, the gym and the rims and, and the environment. So Ohio State will have an advantage for the first couple of minutes having played yesterday. What what they do with that is, is entirely up to them. Um, you add into the you add into that the fact that there's just there is some emotional uh, motivation, some emotional advantage for Ohio State because I think there's more to the desire to not get beaten three times in a row than there is to beat somebody three times in a row. I mean, really, if, if Michigan State loses, it's kind of like, oh, well, that sucks. You know, we beat them twice the regular season. We destroyed them in both games pretty much, you know. But, you know, we're going to go on. We're going to be a one seed, a two seed, like whatever. For Ohio State to lose three times to Michigan State in one year, would that, that would sting a lot, I would think. And so I think there's an emotional component to this game that, that will help out as well. So I think if you add those two things into the game, you could see a scenario where maybe we're talking 10 minutes in, Ohio State's winning 25 to 18. And then you go, okay, well, can they make enough plays? I, I think they need um, the, the way that Jaquan Lyle was able to sort of control the game in the second half and just uh, create for his teammates, get rebounds, drive the basket, the way he and Mark Loving were able to, to get to the line. I mean, they need a lot of guys to play at optimum levels, and they need Michigan State to miss shots. I mean, you look at how well the Spartans have shot against the Buckeyes this year, and uh, you just you have to hope that you know Bryn Forbes doesn't go off, and Denzel Valentine doesn't go off, and Matt Costello doesn't get going, and you know they need Penn or they need Michigan State to miss shots. That's that's probably the biggest thing. We've used the word rebuilding when talking about this Ohio State basketball team pretty much every time we've talked to you, Adam. So I guess now here, sitting on the cusp of the end of the the season. Is this team where they thought they were going to be, or are they a little bit ahead of it, or are they a little behind? Well, I guess it depends on when you would, like, what you want to use as a starting point. Because I think that Mata has said in the last week or so, and I have to agree with him, you know, if, if you would have told him that he was going to get to 20 wins when they were losing to Louisiana Tech and Texas Arlington, he probably would have told him he was crazy. And I think if you were to look at, you know, where they are now after maybe a, a loss at Maryland where they lose by 35 or a loss at Indiana where they lose by 25. I mean, for them to be, you know, not necessarily in the NCAA tournament conversation, but on the fringe of it, I mean, I think that that is a sign of progress. I think that you've seen bits and pieces out of some guys to where, you know, they couldn't do X, Y, and Z at the beginning of the season, but they're they're performing at a more optimum level now than they were then. I, I do think this team has gotten better. I think that, um, you know, the one – the one um, I don't know, wrinkle in the plans or whatever you want to call it, you know, Jay Sean Tate, you know, going out with the shoulder uh, surgery, that's, that makes it a little bit more difficult to gauge, you know, maybe how far this team has come because they don't have their full complement of guys and you can't really account for, you know, an injury of that magnitude. So um, I, I do think they're better. I'm not sure how much better or if they're on track. Um, honestly, it's a cop out of an answer, but I think we'll, we'll know if they're on track 
say like ten games in the next season. If they get through some early, you know, non-conference games, I don't we don't know the schedule yet, but you know, if they get through without losing to Louisiana Tech and Texas Arlington and Memphis, then you know, then then I think we'll have a, a much clearer idea on who these guys are. It's never too early to look toward next season. Michigan State losing three seniors. Uh, Maryland is a little younger than that. They look pretty good for next season. The Buckeyes young as well. Is, is there a pecking order yet for next season, or is it, is it too early? Um, you know, I, I, I don't really have a good answer on that one just yet. I do think that uh, I think Illinois will be better next season. I think you look at that roster. They've got some, some talent. Uh, they've shown it here these last few days, and that was a, a big-time win yesterday for them in the tournament, beating Iowa. Um, I, I, and they've got some good recruits coming in. I mean, Indiana or Illinois could be good next year. Um, I think Purdue will, will probably be pretty solid. Um, you know, it, it's hard for me to say. I haven't really looked that far ahead just yet. It's more mm-hmm. about, you know, what's Ohio State doing right now and what do they have to do to make the tournament. But um, it's just, you know, that, that is the biggest thing with Ohio State is this entire roster could be back next season. And then you add in a couple of, uh, a couple of freshmen. So, you know, you have to expect that this team will improve and that this team will be better than it was this season because there's no excuse not to. The Ohio State men's basketball team still has, I would say, slim hopes of making the NCAA tournament. Adam Jardy covers the Buckeyes for the Columbus Dispatch. Thanks as always, Adam. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. When ranking the best athletes ever from Columbus, you might think of names like Buster Douglas, Terry Glenn, Michael Redd, but you probably don't think of Esteban Weaver. But in the mid-1990s, the Bishop Hartley freshman was called the best player in his class in the nation and a can't-miss prospect. But he did miss, and he never played major basketball. Weaver is the subject of the new documentary, Who is Esteban?, that's screening this weekend in Columbus at the Gateway Film Center. He came into studio along with the film's co-director, Ryan Conley. So Esteban Weaver, a lot of players that we hear about not quite living up to their potential or to the billing. It seems to be about injury, maybe drugs or alcohol. Mm-hmm. Your problems seem to be mainly social. At least that's what I've read. Is that fair? Is that what you would say? Yes, sir. Guilty by association. You mm-hmm. know, just hanging out with the wrong people, wrong crowd. Just uh, guys who are getting in trouble or what are you? Drug dealers, killers, you know, just people in the street that I adapted to. It was just a, It was just a lifestyle that I was adapted to at that time of my life. Them to the people that I was attracted to, they were attracted to me. So it just came hand in hand at that time. You were rated the number one player in the country, definitely the number one player in Ohio. T- talk us through your story, where, where it went from you were in high school putting up 25 points per game as a freshman at Bishop Hartley to, to where we're sitting today. Talk us a little bit about your story. Um, you know, just uh, coming from Bishop Hartley, my journey started after that, after uh, my coach, uh, Tim Byrie, had got fired. Um, I left there, and after that, it just became a, a spiral of just different schools and bouncing around. I didn't really have any stability, you know, because uh, I looked at Coach Byrie as a father figure. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I had my father early in my life, you know, but due to drugs and stuff, he was, you know, kind of taken away from me. I mean, he's still around. He's alive, but... You know, drugs just took him, you know, out of that father figure role. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Coach Byron was uh, one of the closest things to a, uh, a father that I had. So once I left Bishop Hartley, it was just uh, it was a problem with me adjusting, you know, just learning how to uh, learning how to listen, learning how to stay, you know, in class and stay consistent. And I just felt like, you know, once I got uh, once I left Hartley, you know, it was a. Uh, 
I just pretty I just put like pretty much put my my heart on my sleeve and just you know just pretty much did what I wanted to do. I didn't answer to anybody. I didn't uh, feel like I owed anybody any explanations or any answers, and I just wanted to try to try to do things my way, which was not the right way, obviously. But just uh, traveling, going through different schools. I left and went to Maine. I think that was the first uh, that was the first game changer in my life for me. Right there was when I actually left the city of Columbus and uh, traveled to Maine, which is. You know, if, it's if people about don't know, as far away as you can it's get. on the corner of the earth to me. You know, that's why right. I live. If you look in the, you know, if you look at the map, it's you know way up in the right hand corner. So it's practically Canada, right? <laughs> basically. So and uh, you know, it took me 19 hours to get there. I drove by myself 19 hours. Uh, you you know, went a freshman or sophomore in high school at this point? Uh, yeah, I was like a sophomore, like a sophomore going there. So uh, um, it was just different when I got there. When I got there, the first day I got there, I was accused of rape. I was accused of fondling the young lady that was there. And, uh, you know, once the stories, you know, once everybody got their stories together, they understood that I had just got there that day. The guy she was accusing had been there for weeks. So, you know, when I got there and that happened, that had, that had like, rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't, after that, I didn't even want to be there. You know, so I, you know, had to talk with my parents. And, you know, they asked me to tough it out. But, you know, after so long, I just became homesick. I just couldn't. I just couldn't deal with, you know, the, the atmosphere out there and the people. You know, it was no disrespect. It wasn't like, you know, it was racism, but just, you know, being there in the beginning and getting accused of rape. Yeah. You know, where I'm coming from, where women throw themselves at me. It was just kind of a, you know, just kind of a different change, you know. So getting back to the basketball court, your freshman year, you were called the best freshman in the country. And this is uh, with guys including Lamar Odom, Tracy McGrady, and Ron Artest. Mm -hmm. Do you think you were that good? I mean, could you could you have uh, if you had stayed in school and stayed on the right track and everything had worked out perfectly? Were you that good? Yeah, uh, if I'd have stayed at Hartley my four years, I would have I would have definitely uh, went to the NBA out of high school. It was there was no college for me. You, you knew know? at that point, yeah. even early on. Yeah, it was no college for me. I wasn't even thinking about college. So that was the opportunity that uh, I knew that I had. If I would have stayed at Hartley, almost in a similar situation like LeBron James, you know, he went. Yeah, you were called LeBron before LeBron. Yeah, he went to a Catholic school, you know, and this is I'm six, seven years older than LeBron, so you know, our, you know, we are kind of in different eras. So, uh, you know, for him to have went to a Catholic school, but I went to a Catholic school to see that he went there his whole four years and went out of high school. So, you know, that was that was what was supposed to happen to me. That was my dream, you know. So, but I fell short of that. So our first couple of questions have really been, who is Esteban Weaver? And that's exactly the question that Ryan Conley has asked. He's a co-director of a movie, Who is Esteban? Talk about why his story appealed to you and talk a little bit about the movie that's premiering next week. You know, as a sports fan growing up here in Columbus, I, you know, I thought I had a pretty good understanding of basketball, even on the high school level growing up, but I'd never heard of the name Esteban Weaver. Uh, so the more I looked into the story the more I was intrigued by it, especially the fact that, you know, this was happening here in Vice City, here in Columbus. Um, you know, he, he mentioned if Esteban had come along, you know, six or seven years later, his highlights would have been on SportsCenter. His games would have been on ESPN. So it, it, it just really, uh, you know, drew, drew, drew my attention. Like, why hasn't somebody done this story before? So that, that's kind of where I'm coming from on it. The movie uh, has been gestating for a while. Uh, my partner and I, Mike Rain, have been working on it for about two years now since we first met Esteban and, you know, tracking down interviews and following him around. And the most of that was uh, Mike and I with one camera. You know, we're completely independent filmmakers. So it's been a it's been a journey. Um, 
in the past couple months, Homage, the local brand Homage, mm-hmm. has come aboard and they've helped us get through some post-production stuff. And uh, we're excited to share the film next weekend. It's uh, March 12th at the Gateway. Esteban, you've dealt with the media a lot for the last 20 years or so. What was it like being the subject of a film? Um, I mean, actually, it's a, it's a humbling experience. You know, the cameras and everything I'm used to, you know, radio and everything, I'm used to that. But it was a humbling experience to know that um, that my uh, story is going to finally be able to be told on the big screen. And it's a story about your life and not your life on the court. I think that's the, the biggest difference between a, a sports center highlight, a game film highlight, and this documentary. Right, and that's uh, and that's what we, uh, me, Mike, and Ryan had, you know, that's what we aimed I aimed to shoot for was you know to for it to be about my life and not just about basketball because everybody knows Esteban the basketball player you know but now they get to know Esteban the person. We should say that you did go on to play uh, junior college basketball. You also played at Central State here mm-hmm. in Ohio in 2005. You played in the Worthington Summer League. You led that league in scoring, playing with guys like Terrence Dials, uh, JJ Soldier, Scooney Penn. What are you doing these days? Um, just traveling from, uh, you know, rec centers and schools, uh, just preaching to the kids, the youth about the wrongs and rights in, in the streets and, you know, staying away from drugs, staying away from the wrong people, and um, just playing basketball still. Just, you know, I'm not going to stop playing basketball until I'm physically not able to because God has blessed me with a gift, and I don't feel like that, you know, that I can uh, waste it even though I didn't make it professionally. I still like to, you know, entertain people that still like to enjoy to watch me play. Is that your message right now, to learn from your mistakes and stay stay away from those, you know? Absolutely, just to learn from your mistakes and, you know, just to be able to look at me and know that I'm a walking testament of that you can turn your life around. You know, even though things don't work out for you in the beginning, you know, that's not that doesn't mean that life is over. That's just the middle of your life. You know, things didn't happen to me up until I was 27, 20 years old when I realized that I wasn't going to make it to the NBA then it was time for me to start looking at other avenues to, you know, set myself up for the, the back end of my life. Ryan Conley, how can people see the film? Who is Esteban? Uh, well, we have an- another screening that's been added at the Gateway. The first screening sold the out. The first screening is sold out. The premiere um, is sold out on the 12th, but there's a second screening now Sunday, uh, the 13th at 4.30. Uh, and starting Monday, uh, you'll be able to see it for free online at uh, homage.com. Uh, so check it out. Esteban Weaver, one of the all-time great high school athletes here in Columbus. He's the subject of the new film, Who is Esteban? Esteban and Ryan Conley, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. It's been March, so no football going on right now, but it is draft and combine season. Nine Ohio State Buckeyes left the football team early to turn pro, and then you've got a handful of seniors that are also getting a serious eye from NFL scouts. OSU is once again hosting a pro day where those scouts can come in and get a good look at all the guys. Eric Sager from 11warriors.com joins us from the OSU Pro Day. Eric, All-American lineman Joey Bosa looks to be the first Buckeye picked in the draft, so it's safe to say he's getting the most attention. Isn't he always? Uh, I think it was – there's a ton of Tennessee Titan personnel here, and they hold the number one pick. Uh, so we'll see whether or not what that comes to fruition. And I thought it was interesting, too, his little brother, Nick, who is a 2016 Ohio State commit, said to come to Columbus in the fall, as well as the rest of the Bosa family are here. And, and Nick is wearing a Tennessee Titans hat and a Tennessee Titans T-shirt. So mm-hmm. how well that kind of, you know, inflicts on them whether or not they should draft his brother, we'll see. But – you know, Joey obviously has a lot of attention, but the big names as well, like Braxton Miller, uh, Michael Thomas, are also getting a lot of attention from scouts, it looks like. 
just because those are some big name wide receivers, especially with Braxton only playing uh, wide receiver for one season at Ohio State. Joey Bosa got a little bit of negative press after his performance at the NFL Combine in Indianapolis. Talk about what he needs to do at Ohio State's Pro Day to kind of, you know, throw away that bad press and, and make it all good again. Yeah, I think one of the biggest things he needed to do was just to run the 40 again. I know I saw a lot of people that were kind of questioning his times with that, and he did that already this morning. Um, and he, who knows what the times are and whether or not how official or close they are to what he actually ran. But I think he just kind of needs to come out and do everything again, show that he's healthy, show that he's eager to do whatever these NFL scouts and personnel want him to do. Um, and just kind of, he needs to continue to be who he is. And he's a, he's a big body. He's a pass rusher. He's arguably the best pass rusher in the draft. So he, he'll show the explosion, I'm sure, here again, and that'll help him as far as draft day comes. We've talked about Joey Bosa, Braxton Miller, Michael Thomas, uh, Ezekiel Elliott, also the star running back from Ohio State going pro. Who uh, are there any surprise guys over there? Anybody who uh, who are really shooting up there? You know, when as the draft approaches, you see these guys' stock really skyrocket or plummet. Or is, is there anybody like that today? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the first one, the first name, he's been his stock has been kind of rising ever since he was declared for the draft. Is Eli Apple? Uh, he's the long defensive back. He's a corner and. and NFL teams want that guy that can run and turn and, and get back on the ball. And he ran really well at the combine. He didn't run the 40 today because he didn't need to, but he, he showed a lot of speed. And I think that was kind of the big question that NFL teams had with him. And that's why his stock has kind of bolted up as well as linebacker Darren Lee. He destroyed the combine. He, he did not run today. I don't think he really needed to because of what he did in Indianapolis a few weeks ago, but those are the two names for me from this class of Ohio State players that names are just continuing to rise. And we've been talking with Eric Sager of 11warriors.com. It's OSU's Pro Day. He's there today. Eric, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. And we close the show with a look back. And we're going way back, all the way back to before we were born in 1976. That's right. That was the year the Cleveland Cavaliers shocked the basketball world in the series that's become known as the Miracle of Richfield. That's when the Cavs won maybe the weirdest playoff series in NBA history. It took a series of heroics and buzzer beaters, but the Cavs beat the Washington Bullets in seven games. And as always the case with the Cavs of that era, the strangest part of the series was that it was in Richfield, the rural home of the Cavs' old stadium, probably the most secluded stadium in modern sports history, really in the middle of nowhere. From partner station WKSU in Kent State, Amanda Rabinowitz spoke with our friend Terry Pluto from the Cleveland Plain Dealer about the Cavs' honoring the 40th anniversary of this series, even though the Richfield Coliseum doesn't even exist anymore. I would doubt there's ever been any stadium, any arena, anywhere that after it was knocked down, a national park took it over, part of the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would never have believed there was a 20,000-seat arena, and you never would have believed that for 20 years the Cavaliers played there. Yeah, because I even looked at old pictures. There was a whole parking lot. I mean, it was a whole huge complex, Mm -hmm. and it's just completely just farmland there. The interesting thing is nothing ever grew around it. Mm -hmm. See, when Nick Moletti, who on the Cavaliers, took the— team from downtown Cleveland out to Richfield. He got a deal on all this land. He had dreams of a hotel and shopping mall and all this developing around it. So when you go to the queue now in downtown Cleveland, you look up in the rafters, you see some jerseys hanging up there. 
of players who were part of history at the old Richfield Coliseum back in the mid-70s. I remember people said, Miracle of Richfield. What is that? Yeah. They look up in the rafters, and you see some great players up there. You know, Mark Price's jerseys up there, Larry Nance. Then you see Bingo Smith, mm-hmm. and you see Nate Thurman, who was a great player but playing for Cleveland for a year and a half. Of course, Joe Tate has kind of his banner up there, too. Mm-hmm. The former radio announcer. Right. And this is kind of a legacy of the miracle of Richfield. But on top of it, you turn on the radio, and John Michael's doing the games with who's his partner? Jim Jones. Jim Jones. Turn on television. Fred McLeod is doing the games, and his partner is? Austin Carr. And then when they go to the post and pregame show, there's Jeff Phelps, and he's sitting next to? Campy Russell. All three of those players are on the Miracle of Richfield team. <laughs> They're still around. They're, They're still s- around. They're still a big part of the Cavs organization. Exactly. Here's how it is. Basketball started in Cleveland in 1970. Played in an old downtown Cleveland arena on Euclid around 30th. That's long gone, too. Nick Maletti, who owned the Cavaliers, tried to get Cleveland to ante up with land and money. Couldn't do it. Then he got this vision to put the Richfield Coliseum way out there. Put it together, and they moved. The Cavs were terrible in 70, 71, 72, 73, 74. 75, 76, all of a sudden, they finished 49 and 33. Finally made the playoffs. At midseason that year, they traded for Nate Thurman, and the team just took off. They had a seven-game series with Washington. There are all these close games. Every broadcaster I know who becomes kind of a, a legend in their hometown, yeah. there's a team or a player that makes them the legend. Joe Tate was a very good announcer in 1971, 72, 73, but the Cavs were always losing by 20 or 30. So, right. you know, all of a sudden now they're winning close games. Joe is like his voice is matching the moment. Second round, Boston Celtics. Jim Jones, who was their starting center, leading scorer, breaks his foot in practice. Mm-hmm. That's it. They lose to the Celtics. No title. And, you know, it was a team that was not a great team. But it was a team with a moment in time. And the moment ended with a broken foot. But what it did is it brought people, frankly, out to the Richfield Coliseum who thought it was too far ever to go. Mm. It established Joe Tate as a, as a broadcaster. It endeared some of these players to the you know, kind of the the Cavs fans' hearts. We talked about there's three of them still in broadcasting right now. Yeah, still on the air. So this Friday, the Cavs are bringing all these, you know, players back from the uh, Miracle of Richfield year. And there's a whole bunch of people going, what is the Miracle of Richfield? Well, well, the Miracle of what? Is it a broken foot? (laughs) Is it that far removed from our memories? I think so, because you basically would have to be pretty close to 50 to remember this. But to the Cavs' credit, realizing that they have special meaning that's what's so interesting is that all these former players are still so entrenched in this area. Right, even though fans don't know a lot of them, don't even know why. <laughs> you could trace it all back to the miracle of Richfield. It's a pure Cleveland, Northeast Ohio, Akron thing. It actually was a, if you look at the NBA, as an urban sport played in what was once a sheep field. And there's not even a sign there or a nothing. plaque or anything. Nothing. No, nothing. It's just a field. Just a field. And that will do it for this week's edition of After the Score. You can find an archive of episodes using iTunes and on our mobile app. You can also follow us on Twitter. Give us a shout-out at After the Score. Until next week, I'm Thomas Bradley. And I'm Steve Brown.
One day.